Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Dubé. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking with leading researchers, clinicians, and industry experts to unravel the mystery of psychedelic science. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Magic Med Industries CEO, Dr. Joseph Tucker. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, this is really exciting. It's our first episode of Sci-Fi, and uh, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about you and the exciting work Magic Med Industries is doing in the psychedelic space. So did you want to just introduce yourself and share a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, why don't I just uh, start by just introducing myself. Um, so I'm a, I'm a scientist who, by training, who came to the dark side business uh, quite, quite some time ago, in fact, um, got, got a PhD about 20 years ago in uh, biochemistry and molecular biology, but for the, for the longest time have been in industry, and my whole career has been about developing new drugs, uh, and the majority of of the work that I've been involved in all has to do with brain health and mental health. You know, so some of my earliest companies were working on stem cells who were actually developing um, replacement stem cells for your brain tissue after you'd suffered, say, a stroke or traumatic brain injury. Uh, and, and since then, I've worked in, again, most of the time I've been a CEO uh, or, or some other senior executive in the company. So also worked in companies developing drugs for schizophrenia or um, MS. So, so quite a lot of brain health has been my concern for you know, the last 20 years of my professional life. And it's always been around new and exciting technologies. I love working with startups. I love working with scientists who are creating new, new therapies, new solutions to brain and mental health issues and helping those scientists. You know, my role in the in this whole industry has always been there's these fantastic new scientists coming up with great new things, but boy, you can't let them you can't let them out into the real world, right? <laughs> they'll they'll run into a businessman and and they'll they'll kill each other. So <laughs> my my career has really always been about bridging that. You know, I understand what the scientists are doing and I totally get it the value, but I can also communicate with the business world and we can create companies around that, finance those things and develop those technologies forward. And so that's been my whole career. Uh, the last seven years has been really exciting. I've been partnered up with Dr. Peter Ficini out of the University of Calgary, who is really a, a absolutely world-renowned expert in, in the area of understanding how plants develop these molecules, which are drugs that, that people use as drugs, figuring out how is it that plants make those things? And, you know, once you understand that, what can we do with that? Can we improve those molecules? Can we take the production system out of the plant and put it into something which is more amenable to pharmaceuticalization or the industry? Can you make these drugs better? Can you make them cheaper? Can you make them safer? And, and you know, the fun thing working with Dr. Ficini for the last seven years has been uh, 
he's he's a, a and it's actually it's kind of an oxymoron a fearless scientist he loves he loves to do this stuff that everyone else says oh that's kind of taboo you know but he is absolutely unafraid so you know the the first program we worked on was in opiates and and understanding the opium poppy and his uh, he, he, right he's one of the few scientists in Canada at a major university who's got a license to to make and grow and sell opiates and you know he's done similar work in ephedra in cannabinoids and so we've had a great journey the last seven years and and that's actually how we got to where we are now. Now we're working on these new molecules, very exciting pharmaceutical molecules that again, come from nature, right? And so I love I loved to work with, with Dr. Ficini because you know nobody knows how to figure out what nature is doing and then you know what can we do with that? How can we make that even better? Anyway, that's a little bit of my background. Oh, that's really fascinating. I can relate uh, in some ways. You know, I'm a clinical biologist as well, and it's been really interesting bridging, uh, trying to establish that bridge in science and media. You know, that's kind of my uh, kind of my wheelhouse. Is taking my experience, and then I'm fortunate enough to be able to connect with people like you, and then take all of this nerdy discussion and try to frame it in a way that's you know uh, digestible and appealing to our audience. So that's really exciting. I know that you're doing some really cool work uh, at Magic Man Industries, and you know you talked about your prior work in cannabinoids and opiates, and now psychedelic medicine is really in this renaissance right now. Uh, so if you could tell us a little bit about the drug development process, I know you guys are working on making derivative compounds there. Uh, so I think just a brief snapshot of what's going on at Magic Med would be a great place to kick off this conversation. Sure, thank you. And, you know, the our, our experience really has helped shape what we're doing at Magic Mad, you know, it's it's those years that we spent partnered with big biotechs and and big pharma, working on production systems, transferring production systems, and also recognizing, you know, the the value of new molecules, and and the opportunity that new tools give you to create new molecules. And so all of that kind of experience over the last few years has led us to what we're doing now. So, you know, what we're doing now is we're taking, and I think this part is, is probably the most sort of creative and exciting part of all of this, is we're combining two different, you know, I guess, uh, areas of science that, that often are not combined. And, and so one of them is, you know, we use this term synthetic biology, which is really a grand term that means a million different things. People use it to mean all kinds of things. And, and in this context, we're doing uh, maybe what you might want to call biocatalysis might be a better term for it. And, and what that means is we're going to plants and, and mushrooms and other natural organisms that make these really cool molecules that we call psychedelics. And we're going and saying, so how do these guys make them? What is it they're doing? What are the enzymes that they use? And we say, that enzyme's really neat. Let's take that one. Or, or sometimes what we're doing, and, and this is actually where it gets really cool, is we're now doing creative stuff. So let's say we're working on a molecule like psilocybin that comes from the mushroom. And instead of going to the mushroom to get the molecule, we've got those already, the enzymes. We say, I wonder what 
the marine creatures do when they see a molecule like this, right? I, I, wonder, I wonder what these strange fruit trees in South America do when they see a molecule like this, is they have their own variations on it. And so we go and we find those enzymes and we mix those with the molecule and we create stuff. We start by creating stuff that hasn't been created before by nature or by man. And then we combine that with chemistry where chemistry is a really great tool. It's very often used very often in an industrial setting. And it's very effective for a lot of things, but it has its limitations. So when you combine this bioconversion, the synthetic biology with a chemistry step, you get kind of the best of both worlds. You can make new things. You can make them in large quantity. You can make them very pure. And, and that for us, this long-winded description is really my way of saying we do something very simple. We do a one-two step and we make this large number of new molecules. And that's something we learned, you know, historically is that, you know, like the opium poppy, the opium poppy makes morphine. And, and that's, you know, a very small part of the analgesic industry that comes from opiates. The vast majority of the industry are new molecules. They start with morphine and they say, can we make this better? Right. And, 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 you know, the other thing we learned is that things like cannabinoids, for example, in the cannabinoid industry have some interesting effects, but are they really great as pharmaceuticals? We have yet to see that, right? We have yet to see them become pharmaceuticals and it's very hard to commercialize that natural molecule for a number of reasons. But if you've got a new molecule, now, now you have a real opportunity to make it better and to actually be successful in commercializing. So that's what, you know, this is all these things that we've learned and we're now applying in this company. Let's make what the industry needs, right? These psychedelic-based molecules, they're really cool, right? From a pharmaceutical point of view, the things that they do, they bind to these serotonin receptors, the 5-HT receptors, and they have all kinds of, of really amazing effects. And you think, wow, you know, if only we could make that commercializable, if only we could make that better, just think of the positive impact we could have on human health, right? It's, it's so exciting. So that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do is we recognize that that, that little area that I described, this, this synthetic biology, bioconversion, and chemistry combination to make new molecules that's what we can do. And I think that's what we can do better than anybody else. And so that's all we're doing, right? We're going to do what we're the best at, what we're really good at, and create this cyberry, this vast portfolio of molecules for everybody else, right? We want, we want the industry to succeed. We want all these other companies to succeed. We want everybody to take a molecule and turn it into the best damn drug that's ever been out there. So that's anyway. That's what we're doing at at Magic Mike. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, that's really cool. You talk about that juxtaposition of synthetic biology and combinatorial chemistry, and it's been really fascinating just following the process, learning more about it, and uh, writing blogs about it. I mean, that's <laughs> I love doing that. You know. Uh, so I know you touched a little bit. Uh, you talked mentioned the Cyberry and these partnerships. You know that you guys these uh, strategic partnerships through that are going to be helping you 
see these molecules through the drug development process. And that's a big part of your strategy. Uh, so I'd love if you could talk a little bit about these partnerships and, you know, where you see uh, where you see Magic Med heading with that in the future. Sure. Great. And, you know, again, this is driven in in uh, large part by our experience, you know, doing this in the past. We've had partnerships like this in the past with with big biotech companies on other high value plant derived molecules. And, you know, what we've learned along the way is, I mean, a, a couple of important things. First off, if you have several partners, you have um, all these individual options that, you know, may succeed, right? Each, so many different molecules, no one company can carry them forward. Uh, and, you know, and, and they're in different arenas too, right? The, the psychedelic space, you you see you see molecules maybe for addiction, you know. You see molecules for anxiety and depression. You see, you know, a, a number of different places that you can go with this. And so you really can't. No, nobody can do that all themselves, you know. Not even us, as great as we are. So you you really need to work with other people and and other folks who who can really make a big commitment to that. So you know, first off, we recognize that to maximally impact human health, to maximally benefit this sector, we need to work with as, you know, as many others as we can. And it's enabling for them as well as, you know, a, a successful strategy for us. So first off, you know, diversity of partners is, is a really big thing for us. And again, you know, we're enablers, right? We're, we don't want to compete with anybody else. We want to help everybody run ahead. So, you know, the way our relationships work exactly how we've done in the past successfully. And that is, is like, you know, because we know we're just doing this development stage, we don't have the same kind of overhead that so many other companies do, right? If we were taking one of these molecules all the way through clinical trials, and that's expensive, that's a lot of work, right? And it's a lot of risk. And, and my hat is off to the people that do it. It's a, it's a heck of a challenge. I have done it before. And Wow, it's a lot of risk and it's a lot of money, and good for you for for being so you know brave, I guess, to go and do it. So with with companies like that, with each one, we say, look, we know that our expenses are lower, relatively speaking, than yours. So all we are looking for is you. We have some research work that's taking place on your behalf. We're building this molecule for you. We just want you to cover that, cover our research costs. You know, a little bit of overhead. And, and that's our relationship. So we, you know, we go through this process doing that. And, and when we find a molecule through a, a back and forth iterative process, and, and I, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. You know, we, we want to work with the company and say, you know, what is it that you know? What are you finding? Here's what we're finding. Let's, let's pool our resources. Let's, you know, as we do experiments, say, with new molecules. And we say, ah, this one is binding really well to the receptor. Or we say, this change improves the solubility or bioavailability or, or what have you, right? All these pharmaceutical uh, concerns, as we iterate, we'll get at some point to a molecule where the partner says, this is fabulous. This is, this is the molecule we want. We found it. Let's go. And we'll say, great. I, you know, our work here is done. Here you go. And uh, in, and actually, it's not quite it's not quite that easy because as the manufacturing proceeds, we'll help them build out the manufacturing. 
will probably help with some of the preclinical validation type work that you need to do. But ultimately, they then carry it forward. And, and as that molecule goes forward, as they hit important milestones, they enter clinical trials, they complete a phase two, you know, they look back and remember us. Oh, I remember Magic Med. <laughs> you guys really helped out. Thanks. Here's here's a milestone payment for for this great molecule that we developed together. And you know, in the future, when that molecule goes on the market and it becomes a billion dollar product, again, those oh yes, I remember Magic Med. Here's a royalty. Thanks very much. So that's you know that's what the relationship looks like individually, and also we have that with multiple different partners. Wow, that's really phenomenal. You know, when I was getting my master's um, in biotechnology, we were talking about the drug development process. We talked about how it's an incredibly risky, you know, thing to take on yourself. Uh, one in 10 drugs make it and it costs an average a billion dollars a drug, you know, so you got to recoup all those losses. So the way that you guys are structured, it really offers a really unique opportunity to de-risk and uh, partner with a lot of people in the space. And I think that's that's really exciting. Um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about combinatorial chemistry because I know in the past, especially when this first kind of debuted into the scientific world, the drug development world, um, it received a lot of criticism because it seemed that um, intentional drug design was more efficacious in the end, and not a lot of products came from the combinatorial pathway. Uh, so how are you guys positioning uh, combinatorial chemistry to benefit you and kind of assessing or assuaging some of those doubts that some people might have? Sure. Yeah, I think you're right that that combinatorial chemistry has um, has received from time to time some some I don't know disapproval in certain contexts, and I think you know combinatorial chemistry like like synthetic biology, which has similarly been heralded as the panacea. This is this is this amazing new technology. It's going to change the world, and we're going to cure everything. We we've been hearing that with synthetic biology. I, I think we heard that 20 years ago when the human genome was fully sequenced and they said, wow, now we know everything. We're all going to be cured, uh, you know, death. We're going to cure death now. We, we, we know the whole thing. And I, so I think combinatorial chemistry is, is, is like these others, both since and prior. It's a tool. It's a tool that, that can create certain things, but it can, you know, it's limited in, in what it can really do. And I think, you know, there's a, there was a lot of hype about combinatorial chemistry, but the reality is you're, so A, you're limited by chemistry. There's only some things that will work well. Uh, and so this is why we're combining it with synthetic biology to do things that it can't do so that you kind of, you broaden what you're able to actually achieve first. And then I think the second thing also has to do with intent. How are you using this tool? Right. And, and I think that's a very important that's a very important thing to think about. If if combinatorial chemistry is being used only as a tool to get around somebody else's patent, which I think there was a lot of that in the early days. Yeah. You know, here's this great statin drug that's making 10 billion dollars a year. Let's use some combinatorial chemistry, make a new molecule that works about the same, maybe a smidge better. But because it's a new molecule, we can file a patent on that. And we can develop another drug and try to make $10 billion a year. But ultimately, you know, what's the improvement? Is it a 1% or 2% improvement? So, you know, if that's the intent of, of your use of combinatorial chemistry, and I think there was a fair bit of that, 
in the pharma industry when it first came out, then yeah, your your you know your tool works, your outcome is successful. You managed to get a new patented molecule, but it really didn't make the world that much of a better thing. So I I think it's 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 all about your intent, right? It's just a tool for us. Um, where I see I see a really big need here, right? I'm I'm moving to this tool. We are moving to this tool because you know we've seen anecdotally, and now we're seeing more and more clinical data that these psychedelic molecules have profound beneficial impacts, right? Yeah. The, we're seeing the, just, you know, the, the anxiety and depression, the suicide ideation, the addiction, these are not, these are not immaterial things. These are big problems in the society that could really stand better treatment. And I, I really do believe that the, these molecules, however, are limited in how far we will be able to use them in society because of the current side effects that they have. Be, because they're, you know, they're so potent, uh, you know, and I, and I think people are trying to find ways, you know, the whole idea of microdosing is to try to find a way around that. Can we get the benefit? Right. Right. And, and so, you know, microdosing is very interesting to me that what they're trying to do there is, and it, it's, you know, it's a classic pharmaceutical pharmacology concept of the therapeutic index, right? If you get dose this high, it works. And if you go this high, it's toxic. And what you want is the biggest possible therapeutic index. And so, you know, what's going on with, I think, with the natural compounds is people are doing essentially experimentation and saying, can we manage this therapeutic index? Can we get benefit without side effects? But, you know, as it stands right now, I don't think it's clear that that's definitely going to work. But with combinatorial chemistry and synthetic biology, which, again, they're just tools. So the way I would like to say it is with a whole new cyberry, a whole new portfolio of new molecules, perhaps in that portfolio, and you have to imagine that just sort of law of averages, we're working on a few molecules right now and they have these profound effects, but if you make 10,000 variants, something in there has got to be substantially better than, than what we're doing right now. And, and that's the whole idea here, right? If we can make molecules, I don't mean we magic mad, I mean, we, the, the industry, if we can make some molecules that are better to the point that it can be pharmaceuticalized, that you don't have to take them under the constraints that you have to take them now, then you can really get molecules out there, drugs out there to a large, large portion of society. And that's what, I mean, that's what our goal here is, right? Is to have as, as large as possible a positive impact on society. And, and I think that the new molecules gives you the opportunity to do that. That's amazing. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned microdosing. I, I read a really interesting, I, th I think it was from someone at Heaven Life, maybe, but they wrote about microdosing and how the dosage is so low, but the reported and anecdotal effects seem to be so profound uh, that one of the mechanisms proposed was that, you know, the majority of our serotonin receptors are in our gut. So it actually talked about, and I'm sure this has maybe more to do with something like psilocybin that you consume orally um, in, in an appreciable quantity, that it could modulate 
uh, mood and and your neurotransmitters through the gut brain axis, uh, which is one potential you know mechanism for how and why microdosing is so effective. So I'm definitely interested to see more clinical trials and research trying to uncover that pathway. And I bring this up because my the question that came to mind is what are some of the what are some of the improvements you're trying to make? You know, and obviously one of them is trying to reduce the hallucinatory effects. Uh, so I'd be, I would love to hear a, a little bit more about that. Like I know psilocybin is one of the initial focuses of your cyberary. Uh, so what are some improvements that you're looking to make? And then the next question is going to be, because um, I have to ask you this: Do you believe that trying to remove the hallucinatory or mystical component from these compounds could possibly detract uh, from some of the profound shifts in consciousness and just belief structures people with depression or addiction have because you know a, a large school of thought uh, definitely attributes that psychedelic hallucination uh, experience to the therapeutic benefits, but then obviously microdosing presents this other argument, right? So right. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about right. that. No, I, I, actually, I love that you asked this question. I mean, this is this is one of the most interesting questions that's central to this entire industry. Yeah. And I, you know, I, what I love about this this time we're in, it's a super exciting time. You know, you're you're starting to see things like the the Minister of Health in Canada granting exemptions for, for right. people to take psilocybin. And, and you're starting to see decriminalization. I won't say legalization, but decriminalization. And you're starting to see all these renowned institutions around the world now starting to perform clinical trials, right? And so, and I, and I think that this is getting to, you know, the, the core of the question, which is nobody knows. Yeah. Right. You're asking me my opinion, but I'm a scientist. Right. When you ask a scientist his opinion, he'll only tell you what he knows. Right. And, and everything else is like nobody knows. And I think that's exactly the situation right now is nobody knows. You see this experimentation going on in microdosing. And and to date, it's not been what a scientist would call a well-controlled trial. It's it's anecdotal data. And, and, you know, all of the experiences, certainly I've, I've you know, interviewed a number of, uh, uh, we'll call them clinicians that, are, that administer, that are even licensed to administer, for example, in Brazil and, and other countries to administer these kinds of uh, treatments. And yeah, many of them swear up and down that the, you know, the hallucinatory part of it is an essential element to the you know, this huge mind shift, perception shift that takes place. And, and yeah, the argument's been made that, you know, one or two, uh, three kind of events like that with the right therapy and the right dose, and you're cured. Or, you know, you've got a, a life-altering event. And, and you know, I've, I've had conversations with people who've expressed that. And yet microdosing, right? And so what, you know, our problem here, and, and you nailed it is we don't have enough data i'm i'm the scientist right i'm not i'm not the i'm not the guy that'll blow smoke up your skirt we don't have enough data and what's so exciting to me right now is this opening up this this allowing now of testing and not just you know anecdotal 
I'll I'll pop a shroom and see what it does. But actually, well controlled, you know, testing with keeping track of everything and under the right conditions and and you know, well regarded scientists at at well regarded institutions. I th I think that I mean I don't know the answer. Right. right? The, all we have is anecdotal data and there's strong anecdotal data on completely opposite sides of the fence here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't know the answer, but, and I, you know, and I think anybody who tells you they do know the answer is lying because we don't yeah. have the data. You're right. we, we can have opinions, but as a scientist, my opinion is, I don't know. I, I need to see what the data tells me. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what's really cool then is I foresee that there's maybe a possibility for these natural derived or the traditional psychedelic compounds maybe to be used in a clinical therapeutic setting, not at home. And then these microdose derivative formulations that you guys, you know, are, are helping create could be something that a patient could pick up at the pharmacy and use safely you know, uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. And that way we could have a paradigm that maybe, you know, accommodates for both. And the people that do want to seek out uh, kind of like the full-blown experience in a safe place, you know, because that's a, it's a really important element to all of this, mm -hmm. um, can do that and then benefit from, from your compounds uh, kind of maybe on a more daily basis or a maintenance basis. Uh, is that maybe how you see it too? Yeah, I will join you in your speculation that, okay. that 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 seems like a plausible way that this could go, um, in particular because the natural compounds are so much further ahead, and and you know they're, you know we saw Compass they're doing their IPO today I think actually yes. but you know these these companies are are so much further ahead and the new molecules are really going to take they're going to have to go through the whole. Uh, classical drug development process. So even if even if we already have the greatest molecule ever created sitting in a, a test tube in our lab right now, it'll be 10 to 12 years before that is sees the light of day. So you know I think there's a lot of runway here for companies that are that are using the natural um, compounds and natural molecules to actually establish benefit. To as we continue to see decriminalization and, and destigmatization, which I think is also an important benefit that we're that we're seeing right now, you know, as we see all of that happen, I think yeah, it's absolutely possible that there could be again we're speculating, but I'll join you that there could be a, a role and niche for clinics with a more potent experience, and and then as well this maybe more dilute experience but which is something which is uh, again more amenable to home administration right yeah that's really that's really fascinating one of the things i thought about just now uh is safety um, of these compounds like you said the traditional psychedelic compounds have been used for quite some time and a lot of their safety is uh, pretty established, you know, minus maybe some effects of drugs like Ibogaine, uh, for the most part, like psilocybin, um, uh, you know, compounds like that are pretty safe, LSD. Uh, my question to you is, I think when they were creating synthetic cannabinoid drugs, the, the assumption was cannabis is safe and has this incredibly high therapeutic index. So we can just mess with the endocannabinoid system, creating synthetic cannabinoids, and those will be uh, just as safe. And, and we found that to be very untrue. You 
now there have been some synthetic cannabinoids, both uh, obviously on the recreational side with spice and all that, that are incredibly dangerous, but even some pharmaceutical developments of cannabinoid drugs that ended up causing brain damage, even death, you know. Um, and I think that's uh, another reason why that industry hasn't really expanded too far, you know, is because that um, was not able to translate, you know, cleanly. Uh, so how are we going to approach, especially making psychedelic derivatives of these compounds that we know are safe? How are we going to, you know, make sure we don't run into that same problem uh, yep. with these psychedelic ones? Yeah. So you said a couple of uh, really important things there. Uh, you know, you started by saying that the a lot of the psychedelics are the safety is well established, and I would agree with you. You know, a, a lot of them. Are, are, you know, arguably pretty safe compounds in, in terms of when you're talking to a, a pharmacology type right. guy like myself, you, know, you, you use words like toxicity and it, it means different things to different people, right? So right. hallucination is kind of toxicity, although it's not the same thing as makes your makes your lungs stop working, which right. is a whole different kind of toxicity. But, but yeah, I, I agree from a safety point of view, they're, they're fairly well established. You know, I won't go so far as to say benign, not at all, but, but definitely, for example, opiates, you know, very often much more dangerous, very easy to kill yourself by taking too much in the way of opiates. No question about it. Right. And so from a safety point of view, I, I agree that the, the naturals have um, have a better profile than some other molecules out there. Now, with regards to the cannabinoids, I think there, there were, you know, there were several lessons there. Um, and, and actually, I think this is also true of the opiates. There were several lessons there to be learned. You know, people got excited about the idea of, of synthetics and, you know, synthetics. Uh, there's there's again, people people use that word kind of in a loose fashion. Sometimes when somebody says a synthetic cannabinoid, what they mean is a totally artificial molecule, completely unrelated, but happens to hit the receptor. That is totally different from synthesizing the actual natural molecule in a different manufacturing system, right? But so people will say synthetic CBD meaning it was made in some way other than being extracted out of a plant, but that molecule is the same. Right. Right. So it's, it's important to, to draw those distinctions. What are you talking about when you say synthetic? But I'm assuming you're talking about things like making different molecules. So the rare right. cannabinoids, you know, the things like THCV that people are interested in, but know very little about because it's been so rare. Um, I, I think, you know, as you said, there wasn't this immediate, wow, we just have one variant and test it and it's magical. And this is a multi-billion dollar drug. And, and this next variant, even if these are natural compounds, but rare, is also a multi-billion dollar drug. And so I think there was, there was some optimism, enthusiasm that, that something like that, that the magical cannabis plant, every single molecule out of it would make you a billion dollars. Right. Um, and I and I think that you know the the reality is no, it's not that it's not that simple. And and this is why again this is what's leading us to doing what we're doing, which is to say, we're you know we're making many 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 variants, hundreds or thousands of variants, 
A lot of those are going to be bad, really bad. You don't want them. A lot of them aren't going to do anything at all. But our hope is that in that large, you know, in that large pool, there will be some that are great. There will be some that have the positive that you want and don't have the negative. Right. And that's, you know, that is really the idea behind making this large, large pool. You know, because we've seen before, again, I'll go back to opiates, right? Opiates were really constrained in what you could do with chemistry to them. You had to, because the molecule is such a complicated molecule, you had to start with this molecule that had already been through 15 steps or 20 steps within the plant, take this big complicated molecule and say, what little things can I do to the outside of it? But I can't make any big changes without blowing the whole thing apart. And so, you know, in, in opiates, they were really constrained to what they could do. And I think cannabinoids arrived just as synthetic biology was starting to, you know, starting to maybe get there, right? But still, what we're seeing right now in the cannabinoid industry is mostly let's use synthetic biology to make the things that the plants already make. No one's really to my knowledge, gone and said, let's make a thousand new molecules that look like cannabinoids, but are different. You know, not two molecules, four molecules, a thousand, 10,000, right? Because if you're going to find the best, the best molecule, you need a big pool because a lot of them aren't, aren't going to be what you're wanting. And that's, I think, the mistake that happened with cannabinoids, right? You say, CBD is so great. So every one of these other molecules, they got to be so great too, right? There's no reason to expect that. Right. <laughs> right. Right? There's no scientific reason to expect that. And right. that's what that's what drives me, right? Prove it. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Um, I would love to, you know, there's been a lot of really exciting research going on in the in, going on in this space right now. And of course, you know, we've talked a lot about things like mental health and how it can help with depression and addiction. Um, but it looks like these compounds might even be able to be helpful for things like pain and chronic pain. I just recently saw, uh, I think it was a study, the first microdosing LSD study, you know, uh, that found it to be as effective as, as opiates, which is so surprising, you know, especially since, you know, psychedelics are often referred to as nonspecific amplifiers. So I always found it so fascinating, you know, when they're using these psychedelic compounds in someone with terminal cancer. Like I can't imagine tripping on mushrooms when I'm dying of cancer because I'm in so much pain and I'm probably in so much discomfort. And the fear then is I'm going to be in the psychedelic trip that's amplifying right. all of these sensations, but they seem to come out of it uh, in a much better place, uh, you know, so maybe there are other mechanisms, probably so many uh, mechanisms we don't know about besides its effects on serotonin and our perception of uh, our reality, but it also seems to affect our perception of pain uh, and and other physiological processes as well. So if you could comment a little bit on that and what sure. your interests are in the research space moving forward, that would be really exciting for all of us. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and, and as I said, I've been I've been mostly working in the the brain health and and mental health field but from a pharmaceutical point of view it's mostly what i've been doing for my career and and i probably the reason a big part of the reason i do it is i love challenges i love i love taking on stuff that seems like a huge hill to climb i'm crazy that, that way right and <laughs> I, you know I, I think the the brain is still that that last great black box 
right? We boy, we really don't know what's going on in there. We 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 try we try so much. There's different, and it you know it's things like there's the, how do you separate the physical from the mental, right? Pain, pain is definitely physical, but there's absolutely you know. Uh, I don't want to say the word mental, but uh, for lack of a better word, you know, mental components to it, where it's it's cognition and perception, uh, as well as the physical, right? And so, man, how do you tease these things apart? So, you know, I of course I've seen, uh, you know, can, uh, cannabinoids are going to be the next opiate. There and and you know, ephedra and psychedelics and all these different things, and you know. Uh, it's it's so tricky to try to say you know you're you're changing perception. So are you are you really changing the pain, or are you you changing somebody's recollection, perception. or right. what they focused on, and how do you really separate that from pain anyway? When you're talking about pain in the brain, how do you set? So, I I mean I love this space right because it's this total black box, and all this exciting work is happening, and and. You know, every time you see an opening up and even more exciting work, and that's what's been so exciting in this field the last few years with, you know, now cannabinoids, you know, now psychedelics being areas which were completely taboo for decades and decades. And now, you know, lots of smart people are saying, let's let's actually study this in a scientific fashion. Let's unravel this mystery. So, you know, could all... Or any of these different approaches work? Sure, could. You know, it really could. Um, I think when, you know, one of the advantages to something which is definitely hitting, for example, on the opiates and the the mu receptor, you know, that is, you know, absolutely shutting off physical functions, as opposed to say, dissociating. And I think you know, ketamine is like that. Right. It's more of a it's more of a dissociation as is laughing gas. You ever had laughing gas when you go into the dentist? It's not that you don't feel the pain. It's that you're here. Your pain's over there and you're like, oh, that pain's pretty funny. Look at that. That would really hurt if that was me. You know, and it's it's kind of like that. Right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen. I think ultimately the true test is. Can somebody come in, describe their symptom, and somebody can say, uh, you know, a trained clinician or, or whomever can say, take this. This will solve your particular problem, right? And so the, the diagnosis part of what's at the cause of this, this pain is maybe just as important as the treatment that you then cor- correlate with it. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I was listening to a talk by Stephen Hayes uh, and Ruth Chun at the last Psychedelic Capital event. And, you know, he was talking about how in the future is this possibility that all healthcare maybe stems from, you know, someone's mental health care provider because these psychedelic compounds are starting. And he was of the, of the mindset that it all starts in the brain, you know? Um, and so it was really fascinating. You talked a little, a little bit about stigma, you know, and us having these conversations is definitely the first step and, and the biggest step that's being taken um, to reduce that. The thing with that is as stigma goes down, demand is increasing. 
you know. Um, but the supply is not able at the moment to keep up with the demand, which is a good point he brought up. We're not able to train clinicians and therapists fast enough. Uh, and then, so what happens is the cost gets really driven up then, you know. And this really uh, amazing medicine becomes a little bit less accessible for people. So uh, just, you know, an industry outlook kind of uh point of talking what are your thoughts on that and how can we expand the supply and keep this medicine accessible to the people we need it and you know right now ketamine infusion therapy for example uh, it's pretty expensive you know it's not uh, very it's not really covered by insurance uh, you know so where how do you see the future of psychedelic therapy and how do you see it or how would you like to see it you know in a way that it reaches the most people and benefits the most people yeah um complicated uh socioeconomic question there. it's e easy for me to ask that but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well so maybe uh, in a way i'll i'll give a, a in in some regards a, a simple answer and the, and the simple answer is, is you know based on based on my experience and and my sort of my position with within the industry you know within the the drug development industry which is you know, it's a it's a capitalist industry, right? It's uh, and and the reason, largely, there there are there are some notable exceptions, and I applaud them. Like like Maps and Usona, absolutely applaud what what they're trying to do. Um, but you know, largely, it's a capitalist industry, which means it's driven by dollars, uh, and that that you know. As as uh, my my stepfather used to say, w sarcastically, industry rushing to meet the needs of society. Of course, he always said it sarcastically. But the idea is, if there is a need, if there is a gap, people will find a way. If there are disparities in in serving needs, the cost is too high. That that invisible hand. Adam Smith or whoever it was, Invisible Hand, does tend to step in eventually, right? There sure. are always, you know, temporary disparities in the in the situation, frictions, but they tend to resolve themselves. So, you know, as there is a large need for these, I mean, society is recognizing it, right? We're all recognizing from the opiate crisis to to you know, depression being rampant in our society, we recognize it and we're applying pressure on the the government to give exemptions and to decriminalize. And we're providing incentive to the industry to go out and make better products. We will buy those products. There's a demand for those products. And, you know, so that you do have the, I, I, again, I, I applaud groups like MAPS and USONA for saying, you know, to the extent that this should not be patented, that this should be accessible to everybody at low cost, to the extent that that is the case, and we'll, like any any society, we'll push the boundaries while other people are pushing the boundaries in the other direction, and we'll we'll arrive at a detente somewhere, and and this will be appropriate. You have in the industry I've seen now four or five or maybe more companies that are rushing to fill the need of manufacturing. They're saying, we're going to do it through extraction. 
We're going to synthesize it in bacteria. We're going to synthesize it in yeast. We're going to chemically synthesize. So the need is recognized. People are rushing to fill that need and say, we're going to make this molecule. And, you know, to the extent it gets approved in a, in a fashion that doesn't require everybody to have to go through one particular company, uh, you will have multiple sources driving the price down. Right. You will have the education. Yes, there will be short term, you know, frictions, inefficiencies as you have to spool up and teach up your your next crop of physicians. But the good thing is the the new up and coming physicians are they're all the younger, more open, you know, dare I say millennial, more more interested in the cutting edge and what's new and, and less concerned about stodgy old stuff like me. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I think that they will um, as quickly as, as can reasonably be expected come up. And, but this, the destigmatization is a great boon to that as well. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, cool. One of the final questions that, well, getting towards the end here, I wanted to ask you is a lot of these compounds are still in schedule one. So how are you maneuvering your operations? How are investors, how are people getting involved is the question a lot of people have right now. You know, how is this space becoming, uh, you know, increasing in size and it's becoming more dynamic when these are still kind of legislatively locked in in this restrictive scheduling? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I don't know how much that will change. I mean, we did see pretty significant changes with cannabis right. in terms of, of their regulation. And so, you know, we could, we could see that it does look, and that's why the, the, the whole minister of health again, who, who I, you know, kudos, kudos to her, the whole minister of health exemption thing kind of said, we might be going down that same path, which, which would make a lot of things easier, but you know, everything takes time, even if we are going down that path. So in the interim, and you know, it's, it's been good this last seven or so years that I've been working very much in this scheduled drug field where, you know, these working with opiates, working with cannabinoids, working with ephedra, working with all these molecules. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess, comfortable with, with what's going on in terms of from the regulatory point of view, you know, and, and agencies like Health Canada, the DEA are also trying to, how do we do this? You know, we, we, these known molecules, we know what we think. Of course, the data that underpins how we're treating it is changing under our feet. And so, you know, that's how things change in, down, down the road. But new molecules, that's a like, hmm, what is this? And, you know, a lot of the time, nobody knows. You, you make a new molecule. So, you know, one of the funny things is you look at, say, tryptophan, this is amino acid. You, you get a lot of tryptophan in Turkey at, at Christmas dinner and pass out, right? So tryptophan and tryptamine are really, really close. Right. Really close. 
and and one of them is oogly boogly, and the other one is we're we're taking it to help us go to sleep, and we're, we're it's in our bodies, and so when you have new molecules that are somewhere between those, what are those? If you have a new molecule and you've never tested it, you don't even know is it tryptophan or tryptamine. Nobody right. knows. So it's it's this it's and I you know I. I understand absolutely where the regulatory agencies are coming from, what they're trying to protect, and I fully, you know, support everything that they're saying. But there is this whole kind of a gray area. How do you deal with it? And it's it's a great question. So, you know, companies right now are applying for licensing and, and you know, and getting getting the permission. But even then, you apply for a license for the molecule that is known. How do, you, how do you apply for a molecule that doesn't exist yet, right? That's that's a different kind of a question. So our approach for for years in the variety of projects we've worked on is to be very closely associated with highly regarded institutions, um, academic institutions, where the the institution and the professors at those institutions have been working on these molecules for you know decades and decades, and they have the licenses from the government. And the government says, I know that this person, they've been doing this for 30 years. We're good. We, you know, they check them every year. They've got to keep their license up to date, but they know what's going on. So anything that we do uh, that that is, you know, potentially in the gray zone. That, you know, we make sure that it happens there, that it happens under those auspices. It's all appropriately licensed. And, and that's how we, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to get into any gray zones ourselves. We're, we're extra, extra cautious about that. So anything that's potentially questionable, we make sure that it happens under the right licensing at an academic organization. And that's, that's an approach, I think, that, that you know, works I, th I think it works well. I, I encourage other companies to do the same thing. You know, the last thing we need is is people to be playing in the gray zone and and give the industry a black eye. That would be just unnecessary. Yeah, but anyway, I, I don't. I think most people are very very cognizant of what the rules are and and are paying close attention to always staying on the right side. I, I like to believe that anyway. Yeah, me too. Especially this time around, I think people understand how big, how high the stakes are uh, after what happened in the '60s and the '70s. You know, there's so much to be gained uh, by exploring these compounds, not just their therapeutic value, but we briefly talked about how they're giving us so much more insight into the human brain and just understanding how that works, you know, and how important that is uh, just for, for all of us, you know. So I'm definitely very hopeful uh, to, to see this revolution and renaissance continue. And it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and collaborating with Magic Man Industries. I would love to just give you the final word. Uh, so, you know, to give our audience a, a little bit of a message uh, about, yeah, your contribution to psychedelic science and what you're most excited about moving forward. Well, so thanks for that. Uh, the, the final word, I, I guess, honestly, um, uh, like you said, I'm, I, I too am very excited about what we're seeing right now. This, this opening up, this ability now to really start to gather true data, right? And that's what I think as we, as we build our, our knowledge base with, with clinical and non-clinical data, and start to use that to really 
try to address some of these major issues that, you know, continue to beset us as humans. I mean, it's so exciting. And, and what I guess my word for the listeners is, you know, these, these things, they look like real drugs. They look like they have real possibility. And so to the extent that anybody can support entrance in the industry, all the companies in the industry that are fighting the good fight, trying to, trying to take it forward, do so, right? Let's, let's all enable each other. And then hopefully we'll end up with some really fantastic, uh, you know, improvements, benefits for, for human health. That's what I'd like to see. And, you know, to the extent that everybody can play a role in that, I think that'd be wonderful. Oh, that's really awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Joseph Tucker. This has been a really engaging and uh, an amazing conversation, as I knew it would be. Uh, thank you so much to our audience for joining us in this first episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast. And uh, I look forward to our next discussion and our next episode. Thank you all so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.